Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's Thursday, which means it's time for the front three Q&A. We had on board with the one and only Chris Hennage. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, depending on where you are. Ooh, someone's been watching the Truman Show. Uh, Dave O'Brien's here as well. Oh, baby. I don't even want to think about what you've been watching. Uh, and Lawrence McKenna as well. Hey, how you doing? We're all over the world, do you realise that? Are we? Chris is in New York. Where are you? London. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Dave, where are you? London. Yeah, coming to you from around the globe. Um, an historic 24 hours after... Well, one of the bravest performances in football history. I am, of course, talking about Stoke City holding Manchester City to a nil-nil draw at the Etihad Stadium last night. Oh, you know, you've got to say that Pep Guardiola's got it spot on there. Uh, Stoke are a difficult team and Altovic is a man in form. What now? He's the second highest scorer in Stoke City history in the Premier League. So, you know, big game for Pep Guardiola, really nullifying the, the Stoke City attack. Jonathan Walters in red-hot form at the moment. So, yeah, what a game of football. What, what a game. game. There was another game on that. Now 30 seconds remaining. I am, of course, talking about Barcelona 6, PSG 1. People call it the greatest comeback of all time, one of the greatest football matches of all time. You know, all this hyperbole. I mean, was it that it was, good, really? It really, you know? it really? I don't think it was. I, mean, <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of people are analysing Barcelona. Well, let's analyse PSG for just, I mean, just a second. And you'll see that those guys sat back and invited Barcelona onto them. That, it's a good, it's a good point, Lawrence. I mean, before we get into mm, analysing Barcelona's performance, as Lawrence says there, Dave, talk to me. I mean, 
Barcelona didn't play particularly well. I think that's fair to say. Yet they scored six goals against this PSG side. Did Unai Emery get it wrong? Or was this the, the, the wave of fate behind Barcelona that just made this unavoidable? You said wave of fate. Yeah. The wave of fate. Something. Can you quantify the wave of fate? Oh, this isn't the superhero movie. Right. The force then. The force was with them. You know, from Star Wars. The force was with them and it was all just going their way, you know? Uh, I think that Henry made some big, big calls and, and kind of got it wrong. Uh, Kimpembe uh, out, Thiago Silva in. That was a bit of a strange one considering Kimpembe was so good in that first half. First leg, sorry, was, you know, marshalled Lionel Messi and really just stopped Barcelona in that final third. And then you think of the up front as well, Angel Di Maria, who was picking up po- pockets of space that Barcelona couldn't deal with. It's coming into the inside right channel. Verratti was finding him. The problem was when Verratti ever turned over the ball, because he turned over the ball a number of times. He won eight tackles in the game out of his 11 tackles attempted, more than any other player on the pitch. But there was no out ball. There was no option. Because Lucas Moura had a very, very poor game in an attacking sense, in a you know positional sense. But then also you look at the, the press that wasn't there from PSG. The crazy thing that Barcelona went, before we go into whatever they're going to say, they went 3v3 versus the front three of PSG. Cavani, Draxler and Lucas had 1v1s. And how they didn't create a single chance in open play or a single decent chance in open play is incredible. But it's, you know, it's credit to the Barcelona back three, but also PSG. There were so many options to do something to that back three. Move it left, move it right, get Cavani into the channels. And then Matuidi, Rabiot, um, and Verratti were, were, in terms of their press, were completely off. You know, I can kind of see why the press died because Matuidi was the guy applying the pressure in that first half, got booking in, inside five minutes. A massive, massive moment of the game. Something that's not been touched on at all, but that was huge. When your central midfielder that is the aggressive central midfielder gets booked, you pretty much might as well take him off. It kind of happened in the yeah. first leg and they reacted. PSG slightly changed their shape. They went from Verratti single, as the single holder to um, Rabiot being the single holder. But the problem with Matuidi is he's not very good at holding midfield. His whole game is based on his energy. And when he can't be that energetic, bang, your, your press dies, your team dies. And unfortunately, Emery's PSG died last night. Do you think... Well, so why didn't they drop Verratti deep? That's my question. Why not drop Verratti deep? Well, no, it was Matuidi. They would, have, they would have dropped Matuidi deep. And they yeah, could have done that. So, but... So when it, they dropped Verratti deep and, and essentially the, the problem with him was that he got a problem early, why not just drop him even deeper and say pair up with, with someone else? Why not drop two people deep? I, I think the, the, the one issue you have with um, how Matuidi plays is that, like I mentioned, he, he, his game is about being aggressive. It's like playing N'Golo Kante in a deep position. One, you know, when he receives the ball, he doesn't have the range of passing. He's, he struggles to play forward passes, which against Barcelona last night, because they were so aggressive, because they had to be aggressive, it would have given Matuidi no time and potentially could have put them into an even worse position. You know, Barcelona could have turned the ball over from Matuidi in an area just in front of their back four, which, again, is as bad in a way as, uh, as not playing there. So it was, it was an interesting one, a really interesting tactical one. Potentially could have just taken him off. Mm. Been bold, subbed him off. Do you think... Brought somebody else. Do you think Barcelona played well then, Dave? Because, I mean, <laughs> it was a crazy game. Apart from, well, you like know, it. two moments of immense quality from Neymar uh, in those sort of final, crazy final seven minutes. You know, the Suarez goal was it sort of bounced around in the box. It was the own goal. Two penalties. Arguable penalties. Maybe the first one more concrete than the last. Should we, but should we just give Barcelona... Sorry to cut in on Dave. But should we just give Barcelona credit? The reason they bought Luis Suarez was his grit. And the reason they bought Luis Suarez was the mixture of quality, obviously, that he shows up front and the grit that he can show for Barcelona. And that's something that they haven't possessed up front for quite some time. 
well, since since the series of strikers. Surely. And then the reason they the reason they bought Neymar was the opposite of that. He, his, his quality moments and those two things that have essentially been levelled at Luis Enrique as insults almost because they say, well, he's not a good enough manager. He can't line these guys up. Lined up perfectly, and so. It was it was almost the perfect game for them because it was box office in that sense. But I'd still argue, uh, I'd agree in that you know uh, that free kick from Neymar was incredible. It was that postage stamp, unbelievable finish uh, to set up that final goal as well. To have that composure in that uh, that stage when the pressure must have been unbelievable to shift it onto his weak foot and put in the perfect ball to Sergio Roberto. Absolutely incredible. But still, I'd argue that. Barcelona didn't actually play well in that game, Dave. Weirdly enough, even though they scored six goals. Well, well first up, Enrique got it completely right. You know, the the three five two up up against the four three three when you go man for man at the back also means that you go man for man going forward, which meant that Messi and Suarez occupied the PSG centre backs. Uh, Rafinha, Neymar operate um, occupied the two full backs, and in midfield they were man for man. So the midfield of Verratti, Matuidi and Rabiot that was coming up against one of the best midfield threes we've seen in world football in recent years, Busquets, Iniesta and Rakitic, that's dangerous. And that's, in fact, you know, why Barcelona were so good going forward, because they had those 1v1s. And you're looking at someone like Andres Iniesta, his close control, his ball control, someone like Neymar as well. Rafinha's decent on the ball. Um, but the big thing for me was the platform that the three defenders gave them that was why they won this game they were so dominant in the defensive sense 1v1 like i mentioned before they just won it all you know in terms of mascarano he was just cutting the supply out out, of, out from julian draxler made six interceptions in the game more than any other player on the pitch and tt was just unbelievable and tt's a player that you know i was raving about last year why is nobody picking this up barcelona sneaking they put a bid in why have like the rest of the world not been you know in that process but anyway in terms of the game how you know, there was a few times where Mtiti made like a lunge or he made like a tackle that literally just killed the PSG attack. And if he hadn't made that tackle, going through on goal. And in terms of what, uh, you know, PK did his physicality and so forth. In terms of the the, the, the three of them, they won 100% of their tackles, 83% of their aerial duels, which is very, very, very dominant. Nine uh, interceptions and three clearances. But where they were really good was the platform that they created. In terms of passes in the final third, only Messi and Neymar for Barcelona completed more passes in the final third than the three centre-backs. So they gave them such a good platform. And if you look at the pass accuracies for those three players in the final third, it's incredible. You know, Mascarano's at 87.5%, the same percentage that Piquet's got. And then Umtiti completed 95% of his passes in that final third and created more chances than any PSG player on the pitch. I think you've got to give the, this back three real credit because they were the platform for everything. If the, one of those guys messes up in a 1v1 situation in, an, a, you know, in a defensive sense, it's game over. But what they did with the ball was absolutely incredible. And it was uh, it's credit to you know Luis Enrique from playing this system. This isn't the first time he's played this system. He's been playing this system for a few weeks now. He's tried Jordi Alba at centre-back. He's, maybe he's sort of hidden Samuel Mtiti and then unleashed him on this big game to you know, go on and win. You know, Look at the highest pass combination of players, Mtiti to Neymar, 28 times. You're getting the ball to one of your most dangerous attackers the most from uh, you know, one of your centre-backs. It, it's perfect. And Messi as well was, was more involved than he has been in recent weeks. The Busquets-Messi link was back. It's something that I like to talk about because it's so important for Barcelona. That relationship from Bus with Busquets finding Lionel Messi in that you know number 10 slot, that happened 20 times. Everything Barcelona did in a tactical, statistical way, you know, <laughs> It inferred that this result is a fair result. I, I just feel, Dave, that you, there's almost you're prescribing too much order to what was a game of 
complete chaos. Like the goals were insane. It was bonkers. The penalties, the, the referees. To do though. That's it. This is what. This is why the, <laughs> this is why the situations arise. Okay, let's let's go through the penalty situations. Okay, Munier's got Munier's got a one v one with Neymar because of the system that they're playing. They, that is a one v one created by the system that Luis Enrique is playing. I'm not. It isolates players one v one in an attacking sense, and that's why it was so brilliant. I so wouldn't describe it as a vintage Barcelona performance, though. Do you know what I mean? But what is vintage for you? The Luis Enrique vintage, this was Luis Enrique vintage. This is the Barcelona. Yeah, but come on. Like. I mean, this is what... It wasn't, it wasn't like Barcelona oh, play PSG off the park this. or anything it's... like that is what I'm trying to say. Okay, right. So let's let's look at the, the PSG back... But let's say the centre-back. Let's talk about Thiago Silva, who had an absolute stinker. So instead of, you know, Samuel Titi <laughs> completing 95% of his passes in the final third, Thiago Silva completed 58% of his passes all over the pitch. How is that not like a massive indication of how poor PSG were with the ball? And, and also, how, how much is that an indication of what uh, Barcelona have bought over the last few years and essentially tried to construct? They bought Neymar for a massive fee. They bought Mascherano, knowing that he would fit in. All these players they bought over the last few years did exactly what they thought they should do last night. What about PSG? Because, I mean... As Dave's sort of alluding to there, there was a real difference between the level of performance between these players. Uh, they seem to be scared almost in this game. Seem to completely capitulate at the end. I mean, the the, the stat during the round from James McManus on Twitter uh, illustrating the PSG complete just four passes between the 85th minute and full time. Three of those were from kickoff after conceding Barcelona goals. I mean, it's just bonkers, isn't it? It is. There's, funnily enough, there's a video I've just put up on Twitter of um, Matuidi, Verratti, Draxler, uh, and I think Trapp discussing um, the second leg a couple of weeks ago. And Verratti asks, if, if we lose 5-1 and still go through, are you happy? And it, it just seems so prophetic now and seems like such a window into the mind of, of this PSG group. I think certainly you can can raise questions over the the penalties because I, I don't know if they were as cut and dry as as maybe people are making out because I think second one, that certainly. fits the story very well. But but that aside, to, to remove that for a second, there's a major frailty in this PSG team, and I'm I'm inclined to think a lot of it goes back to, to Unai Emery. I've talked about David Carlidge, who I was uh, hanging out with the other. Uh, week and he's talked to at great length about how sort of defensive and and sort of almost defeatist uh, Emery is when it comes to to facing opposition like Barcelona. When he was Valencia coach, he would very much bunker in and sit deep. And it was so funny to watch him kind of tweet through the game last night, saying just highlighting all these things, almost predicting the loss as it was about to happen. And I and I do I, I just think from a, a PSG standpoint. I, I do understand why they went for Emery. I think from a very withdrawn perspective, it made a lot of sense because this was someone who had a lot of European success on his, his resume and that was what they want to achieve. They've won they've won the domestic league, so now it's about potentially conquering that Champions League or at least, let's say, getting to a final. But I just think they should have done more diligence on how he won those games, on how he won those European titles. And saw whether it fit with with their ethos. The fact that, again, he'd never really made a deep run in the Champions League should have been a a fairly big red flag for them. But it was just something they seemed to ignore. And and honestly, I'll I'll be amazed if he survives now because 
again, the league is, is not going as smoothly as it has for PSG in the last few years. They're now out of the Champions League. They've made some horrendous records in the process of that. Um, and that essentially, you know, like the old saying goes, they managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. It is a, a thoroughly bizarre situation and one that you could argue even puts them maybe a, a year or two back in terms of their standing within in the elite level of European football. Bottle jobs, mate. Absolute bottle jobs. Um, Dave, talk to me about Neymar because, you know, a lot of talk about how this is night. He went from the, the prince to the king almost with Messi being somewhat ineffective in certain moments. Neymar sort of took the game by the scruff of the neck. This was his moment. This is one of his moments. I wouldn't say that Messi, Messi's, you know, been pushed to the side like he had a poor game. Messi had a really good game. Messi was linking the midfield and attack. He, you know, wasn't a Messi game where he is doing all the tricks. He is taking off on 20 players. He was doing the the playmaking things he needed to do in that final third. He was working the ball to the right areas. Yeah, potentially, you know, it's not coming out on the stats, but Messi created, you know, the joint most uh, chances on the pitch and so forth and and scored his penalty. That was that was a very big moment for Lionel Messi, who's a player that has missed penalties in the past. But going back to Neymar and, and what he's done, you know, the, the, the free kick was fantastic. What a free kick that was. But I think, you, you know, going to that last goal, the composure to to come inside, to the, the body faint, and then to shift yeah. the ball onto your weaker foot Incredible. and clip a pass over the top that's on a postage stamp. It's unbelievable, but we've always known that Neymar's got this potential. I think it's... Um, this game showing that he is stepping to that next level and he is catching up Messi and he is catching up Cristiano Ronaldo because this was a big performance from him and he did. I loved him taking that penalty as well. That showed a real maturity and, you know, give it to me. I'm going to score this penalty um, in, a, mm. in a moment that they really needed to go. And I think it, it shows in terms of, you know, look at the other side of his game. He wasted a little bit of ball when, you know, when Barcelona were trying to come from around about, you know, the 67th minute till about the 80th minute. Barcelona had a bit of a poor spell and it kept on breaking down with Neymar, but then stepping up in the last seven minutes and, and really coming up clutch. So it was an interesting game from Neymar, but ultimately, Jesus, what, you know, what a performance. What a performance. Lawrence, are we looking at potential winners of the competition? They've just done the impossible. The belief is going to be incredible among the team, but can they go all the way, do you think, in this competition? I think if you look at the um, <clears throat> the work ethic within the group now has now been reinvigorated by the fact that I think the manager is going to leave at the end of the season. You know, PK gave a very compelling speech post um, Luis Enrique giving his resignation. I think that's quite important for this 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 Barcelona side. On the flip side of that, you may have a Juventus side who are also incredibly difficult to break down. Excuse me. Hamilton Hospital. Um, so you might have some difficulty against some other teams. I think they're probably going to come up against some systems that will find them out. And it's very rare that you're going to find a manager who maybe doesn't have the experience in giving the team talk at halftime to say, look, these guys are going to be deflated by two goals um, and, and essentially put at a massive disadvantage by this when in the past he's maybe found solace in the fact that, you know, uh, small margins put his severe side ahead. So I think... When it comes to other managers, I think you'll find people more experienced and maybe teams are a little more hungry than Barcelona and also with a better system. Can I just jump on, on the defence of Unai Emery? Yeah, you know, he, there is moments where these things happen, but the guys change games with substitutions, with tactics. You go back to the Europa League final, 1-0 down at half-time against Liverpool, getting completely outplayed. You know, the intensity stepped up, the, the substitutions he made just killed them. It absolutely killed Liverpool. Unai Emery isn't a bad manager. This is one result out, out of, you know, 
100 results, let's say, that's really I, I gone wrong I, for him. I don't, I don't I think, think that maybe the new camp, it, it doesn't suit him, he feels the pressure, but I don't think we can discount what he's done in the last four years. I, he's one of the best, think best coaches in world football. No one's trying to do that, though. I think, I think that what they are saying is that he's, he's taken the transition into what is a, a different kind of manager's job, which is essentially something which is a more comfortable manager's job. Um, and that's away from a Sevilla or a Liverpool or a, you know, someone of that level and towards someone who's considered to be the, the, the upper echelons of, of European football. I think that's where um, maybe Unai Emery lost out, is that, that Barcelona had that belief and PSG match that, but more. I think it is, is to the squad as well. You know, you look at um, his best severe teams, always with, um, you know, a striker. Fair enough, they've got Cavani. But I mean, the rest of the, the components of the team, this PSG team has been geared to play possession football for the last three seasons. To flip to an Unai Emre direct down the flanks, direct dribbling, taking players on. It is going to take time. It will take time for him to get that. You know, you saw the signings of like Krahovac that I thought would be phenomenal at PSG just haven't really worked out and he's trying to get some Emre-esque players there you know you go back to the best severe teams they're play, basically playing big really strong aggressive defensive midfielders always setting up in a you know a 4-2-3-1 or a, a 4-2-1-3 let's say but there was always that power in the middle Stefan and B or Krajovac two great examples um, of players like that and I just don't think they, he's got that same level of player maybe he does need to evolve with what he's doing but it just seems very un-Emre-esque un, un this side at the moment uh, before we move on, Kenny J. Rabolo tweeting in to ask, uh, was the refereeing a little biased towards Barcelona yesterday? What do you think, Dave? Because, I mean, I thought Suarez's dive was pretty pretty obvious at the end. But apart from that, I don't know. The referee seemed to get a lot of the big decisions right, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the, 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 the first one, the pe- first penalty, the Neymar incident, I, I can't, you know, you've got to give that. He's in the penalty. What for, Munier has lost his feet, but he takes the man out. And unfortunately, he's committed a foul in the penalty area. I think the Marquinhos one on Suarez is a foul. Marquinhos loses the flight of the ball. He loses his runner. And then he it's a slight touch. I, I know it's a slight touch. Yeah, it's a slight Suarez foul, is going to go down. Foul. <laughs> yeah, but this is the thing. You shouldn't be taking that it's yeah, Suarez into exactly, the, your decision. Exactly. And I think that's the problem because he dived a bit earlier on in the game that was a bit of a stinking dive that was like, you know, you, you, there's no need there. He got a yellow card. It was That was a really bad one in the box. I think people are now taking that as the, you know, the standpoint, the baseline when they can't, you know, referee has to referee each decision. And quite frankly, it was a penalty. The Mascherano instant was interesting as well. When Di Maria was through on goal, um, probably should have squared it to Cavani alongside him. But it looked like Mascherano slid in. Couldn't tell if he tackled him or if he fouled Di Maria. Mascherano coming out after the game and admitting, yes, I did foul Di Maria. What do you want me to say? So, <laughs> missed that one as well. But still, uh, what a night. Just absolutely sensational to watch. All the reactions been absolutely incredible. Um, is it the greatest comeback of all time, Lawrence? I mean, people are talking about it now. As, as certainly being the greatest, but I mean, what about Istanbul? You know, I think, well, within a game, I think Istanbul is probably the greatest comeback of all time over two legs. This will go down as one of the greatest comebacks. I also think, though, there's one very strong tactical leg from one manager, one very weak tactical leg from the other, um, and that sort of counts for both. So, uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of people saying to me, "Do I watch the whole ninety minutes, or do I watch the last 10? Watch the last ten, and you've probably got a really good representation of the game if you sort of add the stats from David. Um, you know, essentially, what you've got is a game where Unai Emery sat back and, and he did get it wrong, and, and I think a lot of his players panicked, panicked out there. Um, 
I, I, but that's the thing is, it's not a criticism which is going to get him sacked. It's a criticism which you'd say a manager like him can probably grow and a, a system like his, which probably can evolve. I'm just questioning is, is Emery and in the same way as Enrique, the perfect manager for the perfect team. And I just think, you know, Emery might be better suited to another side where he'll probably be much better appreciated. Yeah, you got a feel for him. You saw how devastated he was after that six goal went in. And as you say, you would be disappointed if York yes. six goals on Emery. And to have orchestrated, you know, one of the European performances of the season. Uh, just a few weeks ago, and then to come to this right. is it's, it's a bit of a, what UEFA wanted, mate. It's what a roller coaster. It's what um, I mean, it'll... essentially, it pleased the hierarchy. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, he's he's not in bad credit. Incredibly, there was another game on last night where Borussia Dortmund won four 0 that uh, no one's paying too much attention to. But Pierre Emerick Aubameyang did a score a hat trick, Lawrence, uh, as they thrashed Benfica four 0 to get through to the quarterfinals. Yeah, I think it was a disjointed hat trick. Actually, um, he in, he he struggled early on, um, and actually, Benfica did very well in containing him. And I think he did very well in, in containing this Borussia Dortmund side, who were looking to be a rampant side in the way they should be on this leg of the European tour. So, um, I was I was impressed by early the way that Benfica pressed. They threatened to get goals through uh, set pieces and corners, and uh, their, their big guys essentially pressing against the Dortmund side, who have been weak and have shown that um, during this season that they're, they're open to be pressed and they're also open to be uh, essentially sat back against and, and struggled. But then it, it opened up for Aubameyang and the Dortmund side. And I think um, essentially Benfica lost their legs in the second half. And that's where Dortmund's belief and uh, support saw them through. So I, was, uh, I wouldn't be impressed with Dortmund in this way uh, that maybe some other people are. I didn't watch the game. Uh, from watching it, with a side eye to the Barcelona game as well. Um, I was impressed with the counter-attack of Borussia Dortmund, but I think if they come up against another side, maybe a Monaco, maybe a Man City, maybe even the Juventus, then I think they're going to struggle because they're going to find someone who's going to say to them, essentially, uh, good luck with that. We're, mm. we're not going to let you counter. They struggle in those quarterfinals then. Uh, a team who aren't going through to the quarterfinals, who are hammered as well. Arsenal, Chris, of course, 5-1 on Tuesday night at the Emirates. Um, how do you feel about this one? I'm a little bit torn because it is, of course, 10 to an aggregate. Lots of jokes about that. The worst defeat suffered by an English side in the Champions League. But although Wenger may have gone over the top with his criticism of the the referee saying how revolted he was at the decisions, uh, there is a case to be made that you know uh, the result wouldn't have been quite so harrowing were it not for uh, confusing red card for Lauren Koscielny in that second half it was scandalous blood it was pure <laughs> madness fam <laughs> I am genuinely shocked at it blood but I think look the penalty the red card they're, they're an influencer mm. I, I want to say with Koscielny on the pitch I think they lost 2-1 over the two legs Yeah. without him um, they lost 8-2 so he clearly has an influence more than just the fact that it's 11 v 11. He, he does seem to hold that back four together. What concerns me and, and what suggests that maybe this is the final roll of the dice for, for Wenger or the final few months is that even with 10 men, we've all watched teams play 10 against 11, even at the highest level. The way in which they crumbled and the communication between them all crumbled suggests that something fundamentally is just broken there. And I think 
in in an ideal world we would we would lament the players only and and talk about how their internal standards need to raise because I think they do. But I I am starting to question if perhaps that the years of mediocrity have made that level acceptable. Because the thing is, and, and I've talked about this before, I think, on the podcast, the idea that really, even though a number of new players come in, whether it's Xhaka or Gabriel, Koscielny, Mustafi, it, it doesn't really matter. It seems to me that there's this sort of bleed over effect of when the period that Arsenal started to accept that fourth place was an achievement, that was when that mentality spread to anyone who came into the club. And eventually, even those who perhaps had higher standards were now of the opinion that it was okay. And I think, you know, they they do say a rising tide raises all ships. I'm inclined to think that through the years of not just mediocrity, but I think Wenger providing loyalty, faith and trust to players that had let him down. There comes a point where it becomes difficult to rouse anything. You look at um, Antonio Conte and I, and I can see why Arsenal fans are talking about changing the manager because you look across there and there in Chelsea as a club that were, what, 16th last season or, or around there. Now they're going to win the Premier League and they view their own change as an opportunity to do exactly the same thing. I think there are a lot of things being ignored in that analysis, but what I think is true is that that fresh perspective is what's needed. I I said earlier on um, this week on Eric Winalda's show that I thought Diego Simeone might be good. Someone to really kick asses, someone to to not care who um, anyone is and and really bring a passion to that club because it does. it, It feels like for all the the complaining, the banners, all of these things that perhaps we we scoff and we laugh at. It does seem as if there's just a genuine lull at that football club. And and the stories coming out today that Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain wants to leave in the summer. And again, I think Oxlade-Chamberlain's a, a good player. I think he's got some potential that's untapped. Yet with all due respect to him, if he wants to leave the club, when he's getting regular football at this point, what does that say about the state of the football club overall? Well, I mean, there could be a potential job at PSG open in the summer, right? Maybe Wenger could go there. But interestingly, Lawrence, um, Arsenal today released a statement. Um, the chairman, the brilliantly named Sir Chips Keswick, uh, releasing uh, a statement to say uh, they're stressing that Arsenal Wenger alone will not determine whether he remains manager beyond the end of the season and that the final decision must be mutual in the best long-term interests of the club. It's unusual in that, you know, usually, uh, Wenger would have signed his new two-year deal by this stage. What do we read into this? That they're putting the decision off until the end of the season. We can expect Wenger to to resign then, to sign on then, when things maybe have calmed down. Or do you think this is really a, a sign of potential change at Arsenal? I think we read that Wenger doesn't trust the people that are going to take over. Um, and I think that actually, Wenger's taken a lot of the flack for what has been a very poor era within Arsenal's um, without, within Arsenal's recent history, at least. Um, <clears throat> I think he was looking for someone who could take over, and he was looking for managers that he thought would potentially step into his shoes or maybe operate with a director of football style sort of model. Um, and what we've seen is a series of people um, 
who happen, either haven't been available at the right time or have maybe even been managing within the wrong context. Um, so Wenger's not seen someone who's potentially stepped into his shoes for a few years now. We've seen a club that have been under the control of manager where, uh, disappointingly, they haven't been able to find someone who can step into his shoes. The board have known that. I think the people at the very top, CEO, everyone have known that. Um, Gazidis has been um, quite open about the fact that Wenger's essentially kept the club steady and that's what kept him on this route. So it's, again, another sort of neutral statement from Arsenal where we essentially see that Arsenal don't have a steadfast plan. They have a plan which, look, you know, we need someone to step into these shoes. And I don't think they've found someone yet. And I think that's what Arsenal are waiting for. Um, and again, they're sort of left with a summer where managers are midway through a contract or not particularly uncomfortable at a club. So there, there seems to be no obvious replacement for Wenger. And that's why, again, they seem without no plan. I think the difficulty they've got as well is, though, and it applies ever so slightly to Man United, is when you've had a coach in there for two decades and he has become ubiquitous at the football club into every aspect. When it comes to appointing that successor, common sense would dictate you consult them and see what they think. The truth is, in the case of Wenger, you would argue his methods and, and his approach is not necessarily suited to, to modern football as we know it. It's a little bit, and it sounds so bizarre to say this for someone that was such an innovator, a little bit dated in some aspects. Well, and well, so Chris, you have to think if, if you're... Con- Chris, that, that's my question to you, Chris. Who do you think can pick up, not reform, pick up off the back of Arsene Wenger? Well, I think, I think someone like Simeone would be good because it's such a sharp contrast. I think that's what they but need. That, but they that's don't... reform. That's reform. And that's where Wenger and the board see a problem because they see a sharp contrast between Wenger and Simeone's methods. Yeah, but, uh, but then I think you need that. And I think that's the problem is that essentially in, in choosing his successor, you have to think or believe Wenger is going to want someone from his school of thought um, in the same way that Sir Alex Ferguson picked David Moyes. Or, or, you know, headhunted him because he, he clearly saw similarities in him. You're going to go for someone who's like-minded. And I think therein lies the problem is that if, if Wenger's going to try and hunt out someone of his ilk, um, I think there was talk of Remy Gard many years ago, potentially one day coming in or something like that. If, if it's someone of that schooling and that thought process you would argue Arsenal are potentially going to just go back around in that same circle again because they don't need someone like that. They need someone who's going to come in and really yeah. ramp things up. But is that why maybe uh, Thierry Elvary's been brought into the under-21s? Ooh. Why they're keeping an eye on the Densburg camps? Why they're um, you know, looking at other managers who have previously been under the tutelage of Wenger? I'm not saying he's got an ego on him, but I am saying that there, there seems to be some sort of mentality which needs to match that of Wenger because he thinks or maybe the board think that he's going down the right route. Dave, what did you make of the protest for the game? Because Wenger's addressed them in his in his press conference uh, after the Bayern game, talking about how you know it's difficult for me to judge the level of protests. Uh, they seemed a little too much, almost. It seemed sad to see that mm. when you know, even if Arsenal, as I think, need to to make a change at that level, to see that sort of level of protest and. Talk of people destroying the club, killing the club. Wenger, you're yes. killing our club. Oliver K pointed out on Twitter, you know, what about Coventry, Blackburn, Orient? That's really killing the club. 
Yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing. They need a bit of uh, perspective in a way. Arsene Wenger, what he's done for Arsenal Football Club is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Champions League final, uh, UEFA Cup final um, um, with the league titles. You know, the level of, of respect, it, it, it's a, it's just a bit wrong from Arsenal fans. And yeah, they want to, you know, they do pay their fees and whatever, and they do get to say what they want to say. But come on, this guy has been Arsenal Football Club for the last 20 years and they've got to take a step back and reevaluate. I think they'll feel a bit embarrassed, you know, later on in life. Um, some of these guys and they'll look back and they'll be like, you know, why why did we do that? Wenger did all this thing. And again, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. I think that's a big thing as a Man United fan that I learned out after Sir Alex Ferguson left. Obviously, the, it was a complete other way. You know, left as a hero, won the Premier League. Yeah, different context almost. Yeah, different context. But then, you know, how long have United struggled without Sir Alex Ferguson, without that influence? And again, what Chris mentioned about how Wenger is so into everything in the club. They're going to have to almost go with a different model. They're going to have to go with a director of football head coach model because Wenger's done it all. And like Sir Alex Ferguson did, did it all. And that's why United have struggled so much because, you know, you had um, David Gill in there for all of his bad stuff he's, he did. He was cracking with transfers. He was like a director of football. Um, but first, Sir Alex Ferguson also took that role on as well. And Wenger does that at Arsenal. So if Wenger does go, then there's some big things. You know, someone like Unai Emery could be perfect for, for uh, Arsenal. I don't think do Simeone <laughs> is, is good because... The, the Arsenal players just are, are so far away from a Simeone player right now at the football club. It's, they, it's almost embarrassing, and that's one of the reasons why they are struggling so hard in these bigger games is because, in a way, they have no fight and they have no no belief and they have no um, tactical now. So it, it yeah. was so interesting how, again, another, another Barcelona versus... Oh, no, another Bayern Munich versus Arsenal game, similar to a Barcelona-Arsenal game, where the wide players just don't track back and they think it's going to be all right, again, isolating... Iron Robin Frank Ribery with your fullbacks. Like, how naive are you? Mm. What What are you doing as a player? Surely, surely you watch teams in the transition. You watch the great Barcelona team under Enrique that won the final. They transitioned so well from a type of defence. They didn't win that because they had MSN. They won that because their transition in, in a defensive sense was so good. Why are they not watching that? Why are they not looking at Leicester City what they did? Why did Leicester City win the Premier League last season? Because they defended in two banks of four. Simple as anything. Yet this Arsenal team have been inept of doing that the last two seasons. And again, it's, it's the same mistakes. That's why, in a way, I kind of, um, I do agree that Wenger potentially is his time to go, but you've got to handle it a little bit better. Chris, uh, I think you're right in that, you know, it is going to be a massive change and making those sorts of uh, changes at an institutional level will be very difficult for Arsenal if they do indeed bring in a new manager in the summer. But do you think Wenger himself needs to make that decision and maybe even that announcement now? I mean, it could change the whole atmosphere around the club the whole perspective of the whole situation you know it, it could sort of take away the poison that seems to be around the fan base at the moment it could it could diffuse the situation i think that's that's true it's a very complicated one for me because on the one hand i don't think some of those people deserve that satisfaction because i think they will feel vindicated in <laughs> in doing what they've done because because this is the thing if if I'm if I'm like very that. frank about it, I think there's a good portion of these people who are making these grand statements that are doing it for self gratification. I don't think they're doing it to be. They can talk about being invested for decades and all this kind of stuff, but but there's something about it that just doesn't feel genuine to me. I'm not against protesting. I'm not against voicing your opinion. It's just something instinctual almost within my gut that tells me that there's just something not right about the way they're doing it or whatever and, and all this kind of thing it feels like it's people trying to to command a reputation for themselves um 
I also think, look, he, he probably doesn't know. And I think what doesn't help is when the people that perhaps he trusts and, and he tries to, to confide or, or even just talk to are so desperate to deconstruct every single thing that he does. We saw what happened with Ian Wright, where he's on BBC talking about, you know, I, I think he might be, be going. Now, someone in Ian Wright's position has a lot of sway and carries a lot of gravitas when he says things. So if he is suddenly saying, well, I think, you know, just the way he was talking, I think he'll be ready to go. He could be vindicated in the summer and Wenger may go. And then you can point back to that moment. But it seems to me like that is also putting a little bit of needless pressure on someone that doesn't deserve it more than anything. I, I get the the frustration with seeing a club not achieve its potential or settle for mediocrity within that elite level. I, I still think that there's an element of the, the human in there that, that's just missing with this. It doesn't seem as compassionate as I would like it to be personally. Let, I think it could also, be dealt with a lot more decorum. Let's also be completely honest. Some people now want to see what happens if they throw Wenger or even Ian Wright or even other pundits to the media or to the Lions and just sort of say, well, you guys are all stabbing each other in the back. They sort of want to add to that. And I think that ha- that happens with Arsenal quite a lot. And I can't say that I see any of the Arsenal fans particularly helping themselves. Because I, I, I think certain Arsenal fans have cashed in on that. Um, or sort of cashed in on that um, idea of, well, I, I know the inside track. Or um, I, I represent the voice of Arsenal fans. So I think what a lot of people have managed to do is engineer a situation where they can make some money and they can get some subscribers or make some or get some notoriety from it. I don't think they're acting in the best interest of the wider public in that sense. Um, mm. and, I, and I think a lot of Arsenal fans are going to be frustrated by that because, I mean, you know, what we saw in that protest the other night and what we saw uh, when there were documentaries from Wall Street or documentaries from whoever was the number of fans streaming into the game who had their head down and just wanted to get into the stadium and see some good football. We see a number of people on camera. We see a number of people, uh, either pundits or fan TV guys, who want to have their face in the limelight and get paid to be there. Or, and I think this is something that we often miss, is that even if you're make, not making direct monetary benefit from that, so be that, uh, that you know, you're not getting paid to be on the channel, you've still got some sort of social kudos there. So that'd be subscribers or people paying you attention or people... Um, following you on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, th- that's still some sort of social currency. So I think a lot of people are gaining from this. And at the moment, the people who serve to lose are Arsenal. And the problem is that the more that you feed into that, the more you get subscribers and followers and all those people who sort of think, well, this guy's up to the second, this guy's on the ground. There are a number of fans last night who passed the camera with their head down just wanted to go and see football and wanted to see their team come back, wanted to support the young players that Arsene Wenger brought through and genuinely believe in the project that Arsene Wenger has brought through. And there are very few people who can say that who appear on camera at the moment. They didn't see Arsenal come back. They saw Arsenal get hammered in the end, 5-1, by Munich going through to the quarterfinals of the Champions can, can I also League. Ju- can I also just say one thing? Can I just say one thing? Um, on, on this podcast, uh, we... I know... Th- I know you know, we sort of make fun of each other for, you know, whatever it is about Mario Götze or whatever, but all, all of us sort of genuinely believe Lawrence, it. not again. You know, everyone, Dave, <laughs> yeah. No, what, but it. what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, Dave, there, there's been, um, 
there, pe- some people have been making fun of Ty on Arsenal Fan TV over the past week, and there have been a lot of people that have benefited from making fun of someone who believes in Arsene Wenger and genuinely just has a love for his club and genuinely just has a love for going for the football week in, week out. And some people on Twitter and some people on the social media have been taking advantage of that. Be that DT, who's a big face for Arsenal right now, or be that other mm-hmm. people who just sort of see, see fit to make fun of someone who genuinely week in, week out, enjoys going to see his club and, and, and actually believes in Arsene Wenger. And I think there's something really disgraceful about football fans when they decide that it's right to turn on someone like Ty. Because Ty... Are they saying, does Ty not deserve... Does Ty not, by putting himself in on that platform and by having his opinion and having his say, deserve criticism or people coming back at him? He's putting himself in that spotlight. Then I think it's... Um, I, I, then I think... DT I think, and troops get plenty of, you know, uh, blowback online. Why should Ty be any different? And, uh, well, I agree. Because one's yeah, humble and one's not. Well, because, because no, I'm not. Honestly, I know there's different personalities, but I think on a base level, Ty. No, no, no. I mean, Adam, let's not let's not reduce it for the point of an argument here. Ty is a genuine. No, I'm not. But Ty, I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I agree with everything DT says or troops and the way they conduct themselves. But I would disagree by saying Ty's a nice guy. Ty is just somebody who loves his football club, therefore he should escape any sort of criticism no, 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 or any no, no, sort no, no. of yeah, blowback. Yeah, but, yeah, but Adam, let, let's, not, let's not distinguish, let's distinguish actually criticism from genuine mockery. And I think there's a difference between saying to Ty, uh, oh, hey, mate, you know, you, you support Wenger and these are my points as to why Wenger uh, it should go. And someone saying, oh, Wenger's a dickhead and you're a dickhead, therefore, for that reason. Yeah, of course, but Ty comes across as blindly supporting the club and Arsene Wenger, no matter what. That's why he comes in for for criticism, no? Because you can have blind faith in the club. You could argue he's the very fundamental definition of a supporter. But I know, Lawrence, you're saying he's getting abused, but I just don't understand. Troops DT Claude gets so much abuse. Claude, I don't think, deserves it either. I, I think, personally, the two that do deserve a, a little bit of blowback is Troops and DP because they're very obnoxious people a lot of the time, to be quite frank. And they I pontificate the and they exactly. condescend other people and they sit there and call people ham rolls and all this and they talk about... And they do this fucking testosterone fueled grandstanding that is embarrassing to watch. Yeah, of course. They, they need, um, they, for them, it's not so much lampooning. It's giving them perspective on life. Whereas genuinely. Claude and Ty, you can see there's a genuine passion there that is rooted solely in, I like and care about Arsenal Football Club. I don't ever see Claude or Ty trying to further themselves. They want to talk about Arsenal with whoever will talk with them about Arsenal. I don't see them starting their own channels and going all over YouTube and social media and trying to make an image for themselves and a career for themselves off the back of Arsenal Fan TV. I believe their interest is genuine. I can't say that with Troops and DT. They're the ones always front and centre when Arsenal Fan TV get invited to Sky Sports and to do these betting uh, sponsorship deals. That's my issue with them, is that they are trying to become celebrities. I think I think I think that's I agree on a certain level about their personalities, oh, but I just Oh come on. You know. can't put you can't put Ty in you can't put Ty and DT and troops on the same level and say that their awareness of that is exactly the same. I think it's patronizing maybe from my angle to say that I think uh, that there are there are times where 
Ty has been taken advantage of. I also think that's true. And I also think there are times where um, he's on the, cha- he's on the channel because he wants to be. He's not. Mate, I, no, I don't, don't do not ta- do not hide behind that. No, why is he? Don't... Why is he on the? Why is he on the channel then? Because, mate. Because he wants I, to go on and have his say. He gets his say. Why should? Because, because, because you and I both know Adam. Having both come, no, having both come through the same, uh, having both come through the same degree, we both know that there's a level of agency within all of these people on the channel and that is a scale it's not a level of i opt in or i I opt out it's it's not as binary as i'm a fan or i'm choosing to cash in on this we both know that there are people there who just care about their local club and they want to go week in week out and we also know that there are people there who have other agendas and other ideas and we can't paint them all with that same brush and i think it's unfair to paint ty with the same brush that you paint DT or troops. And I think the same applies for Floyd. And it's uh, just to say that someone chooses to appear on the channel or not takes away from what I'd imagine Arsenal fan TV don't go through, which are checks on these people, which are things that uh, arguably bigger media companies go through to protect people from the kind of trauma that they go through when they go onto something like X Factor or Britain's Got Talent. And people... Yeah, of course, so that's the criticism that's often leveled at. Now there are are people at Ball Street who mock Fremantle because they've started a company like Shot Glass Media, which then goes on to do something like the Football Republic, Chelsea Fan Channel, Full Time Devils, all those sorts of things. But what those people put into place is a series of checks and balances, which means that they can justify including someone on their channel. Now, whether you whether you think they've done wrong in the past with people like Andy Tate or those sorts of things, then that's that's up for debate because I think it's a very fair point Andy Tate was taken advantage of but at the same time we we cannot mock the professionalism of some people who run fan channels who are looking to protect the voice and those people and I think Ty and Claude and DT and Troops are interesting case studies from an academic level but from a social level let's protect people who care about their club and if, if DT and Troops cared they wouldn't they wouldn't retweet some of the stuff they do. And if Arsenal fan TV cared in the way they do, they wouldn't retweet some of the stuff they claim they do. And that's, uh, um, you know, I mean, I, I serve to lose out here because Robbie's agreed to come on on True Geordie's podcast. He's agreed to come on on other things. I think it's, I think what Arsenal fan TV retweets sometimes plays into the idea of a character on Arsenal fan TV and not a human behind that. And that's hypocritical. It's a huge hypocrisy. And, and it, it harms the Arsenal community and also harms the individual behind it. And for that reason, I virulently take against that because I, I think there are a lot of people, whether they be on Twitter or whether they be anywhere else, it's unfair to target individuals when you're taking on a club. And be that Arsenal Wenger, be that Tar, be that Troops or whoever. It's, it's unfair. We somehow got on to talking about Arsenal fan TV again. I'm sure people will, because, because, will love that. Because the representation of those people is Arsenal fan TV. And the problem is that those guys... I know, but we, be, we've had a few tweets they, saying, stop talking about Arsenal fan TV. No, but one, minute they take, one minute they take responsibility for the club and say, we're the voice of the club. And the next minute it's, well, I'm not at the top. And there's no responsibility. And you cannot say you're any different. Uh, it, 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 it's, this, it's, it's, this, it's the very simple things which I think they they shy away from which piss me off because those guys know they're making money 
They know they're getting something they can sell. And the next minute they'll shy away from it. And it's cowardly. And it sickens me because what it does is it, it makes my job harder because every day I'm trying to sell something from the front three, from other YouTube channels where people say to me, well, these guys, they're taking advantage of people who are less, who, who, are, who, who they consider to be less than them. They're taking the piss out of people. They're doing this, they're doing that. And it, it, it makes my job harder. And yet those people cash in on the sun bets or they cash in on all those sun cash-ins when the sun come along and go, we can use your social media pool. We can use all those things. And they then turn around to me and say the opposite. And it's hypocritical. And I'm a hypocrite as much as you are, as much as Chris is, as much as Dave is, for cashing in on betting or whatever it is you want to put in there. But the point is that we still have to protect people who maybe feel vulnerable to those other guys and care genuinely about their club. And I, I think that's the reason we talk about Arsenal fan TV. Uh, you can say it's a rant or whatever, but genuinely... <laughs> It makes me, I get angry about this because not only does it affect my business, but it also affects Robbie's business. It affects Ty's business. It affects DT's business. And if they can cash in in the short term, they will. Do you know why? Because they know that tomorrow they'll be fuck all in the same way that you will or DT will or troops will. Are you on public transport by any chance? No, mate. I'm, I'm literally outside my flat. Good. And, and I've, <laughs> I've, Good. I've left public uh, transport. But it pit, but genuinely, it pit, me off and, and um, there's, a, there's a point where we won't get to do this anymore because someone on that channel will say something stupid and they'll burst the bubble for all of us and they'll be like I'm a PewDiePie all you guys need to stand behind me because I'm this or I'm that and at that point I'm not by your side anymore because you're not a fan and there's, and there's a big difference between the two Listen, I'm sure we're going to talk about Arsenal Fan TV again before the season is over. There is one final Champions League to discuss briefly before we get to the uh, the questions this week. And already an hour in and we haven't got to the questions. Uh, Real Madrid, Dave, are through to the quarterfinals. They beat Napoli 3-1 uh, away from home. Uh, looked in that first half, Napoli all on top. Got that goal. Looked like maybe they could have a chance of making that fight back. But Sergio Ramos ended any hopes there. The captain with uh, with a towering header. And in the end, uh, Real Madrid triumphant. And they go through to the quarterfinals once again. Yeah, might as well take some more hate from Real Madrid fans and say Napoli were brilliant. I really enjoy the way that Sarri's got these guys playing. Um, Diawara is just an absolute diamond such a such a technically gifted player in terms of passes he completed 89 in the game that was five more than Luka Modric and Tony Cruz managed combined so he stepped up 19 years old and I love the goal the goal was brilliant it's sort of you know the R interception ball goes around the back Kulabali breaks the lines with a wonderful pass the overload that um, Napoli have created on the, the left hand side through their positional play Hamzik little pass to uh, Insignia receives it back through ball what a goal what a, what a team I mean, this Napoli team is an exciting team if Sari can stay they can keep some of these young players we're gonna have a real, you know, we're gonna have a real top top Serie A again, you know, with Roma looking good, Inter looking very good under Pioli. There's gonna be some competition for Juventus's crown, and we'll push up Juventus's um, competitiveness in the Champions League, which you know I'm very excited for altogether. But yeah, Real Madrid were good, I and mean, like you mentioned, Ramos really did step up again. How many times has he done that? You go back to the Bayern Munich semi-final in the Champions League, where he grabbed two goals uh, from set pieces again, two towering headers. Uh, then you go to the final that season. What does he do? He scores the equaliser in the 92nd minute. 
Then you flip it a year later and he's scoring the first goal in the next final. It's just Sergio Ramos just seems to score really important goals and defensively mm. was fantastic as well. And won 100% of his four tackles, made more interceptions than any other player on the pitch. Just had a great game. But actually, it was a little bit sad. But it's a little, you know, this this Napoli team is young and it will learn from these lessons. The likes of Insignia and uh, Diawara will pick up lessons from this. And same will Sari will as well. You know, quite young on the the sort of Champions League stage. That potentially his approach, his defensive uh, structure needs to be a little bit better in the transition but in Napoli what a team best front three in Europe eh? yeah apparently oh, yeah yeah forgot, forgot the great podcast, great podcast, great podcast, um, great podcast. before we move on to questions what about Manchester United Dave uh, held to a draw by Rostov potentially a good result on let's say a challenging pitch Tell you what, you know, you watch Barcelona beat uh, PSG 6-1 and then you turn over to United versus Rostov over in Rostov on Don and you're watching some real soccer, you know, the real good stuff, the championship style stuff. Honestly, you know, Mourinho made a fuss and dance about the pitch, but it was awful. Like, Like, these players obviously get paid stupid amount of money to play football. They couldn't control it on this pitch. Rostov or United players, you know, Pogba couldn't even get the ball under. It was, it was ridiculous and... You know, it's one of those things that is quite interesting with the Champions League and Russian clubs being in it and the winter there and so forth and the state of the pitches, but it just made the game awful. Mourinho set the team up with with playing like five at the back just to counteract what, um, you know, the pitch and so forth. Every time United got the ball, they went long. In the first half, it was quite interesting. The, the three United centre-backs, um, their pass accuracies were pretty, pretty uh, interesting in terms of um, Jones was at 60%. Rojo at 52% and Smalling at 40%. Just because they were just going long, clearing the ball. But it, tactically, it worked out quite well. Uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan took his goal very well. Zlatan created that very, you know, with a brilliant bit of play. Long ball to Maron Fellaini. Chess it down. Zlatan brings it under. Lovely little um, run to the byline. Cuts it back. Goal time. In terms of Henrik Mkhitaryan, he's been directly involved in six goals in the last seven games for Manchester United. Um, and then you, the Rostov goal was just a goal that you expected. A long ball over the top. Um, controlled by the big striker I've forgotten what his name is um, on his chest volley goal time but United will have the big advantage I don't expect Rostov uh, playing on the, the Old Trafford pitch it'll be a completely de- different game for them obviously they're not going to be able to play the same structure they played they're not going to be able to you know the, the long balls that they play won't be as effective on the bigger United pitch and United will be able to you know take a touch not just have to go along. So it'll be an interesting game. In fact, I'm going up for the game. So if anyone is there, oh, any listeners, um, come and give me a holler. High five, chest bump, you give know, the usual. Give him a holler. I actually thought the best thing about this game was uh, Neil Custis's Twitter meltdown, <laughs> Chris. The Sun journalist turned up a minute late for a plane. 60 uh, seconds. And he, he said 60 seconds, Adam. He didn't yeah, say a minute. He said 60 seconds. 60 seconds late for a plane, was delayed, therefore, by seven hours and had an absolute meltdown on Twitter, just going, going crazy, Chris. <laughs> it was uh, highly amusing. It must I had to stop the world's smallest violin when I read it. <laughs> um, no, look, um, I've got no sympathy for him, to be honest. You know, they tell you how... I don't think many people did. Like. Plus, he's, he's, a, delete- he's an ass, to be frank. Yeah. Look, he's look, deleted most of the I, tweets now, you know? I'd, I'd love to paint it any other way, but this is the same guy who, um, you know, when Louis Van Hall supposedly called him a fat man, which I don't think he did, by the way, and I was there. Um, he was the one that said he would try and lose more pounds than Van Hall would get points, um, like some charity that bet or something. Well. That definitely um, went well. 
it's just yeah, it's it's just pretty ridiculous. Like I say, I, I thought it was funny. Um, to get it back on the football, the strike of the day was talking about was Bukarov, um, who that was the was Zenith, actually for a little bit. Bukarov. Quite, quite a big. He's he's an interesting one. I, I mean, I can't claim to have seen mountains of of matches of his, but um, he's always struck me as a fairly decent striker. Um, maybe a little bit better than he got credit for. Obviously, when you play for Zenit, you know you must have something about you. Um, but I do remember he was very good on FIFA a few years ago when, whenever I was Zenit. Lawrence, before the questions, we have to talk about Xabi Alonso announcing his retirement from the game. Even that was stylish, a man of style, uh, doing it well on Twitter. Lived it, loved it. Farewell, beautiful game. Beautiful shot of him sort of waving with his boots in hand. Um, a eulogy for Xabi Alonso. I know he's not dead. But you know, um, it's it's sort of difficult to put into words. Um, first of all, let's remove the branded idea. There have been a number of brand people who have said for years, when Xabi Alonso walks away, I want to take exactly this picture of him. That's okay. It doesn't make it any any less beautiful. He was carrying a pair of branded boots. That's fine. He's played in those boots oh, since day one. Beautiful. That's fine. You can have a relationship with a brand. Xabi Alonso before he hit fame, played very well. He was played. The, he was called the Don in Spain. Came from what some Liverpool fans call relative obscurity to the, 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 the limelight of Liverpool and scored in one of the most brilliant European finals of all time. He then went on to score from 70 yards, not once, but twice, Adam. Twice. Twice? Once of which he was screamed at by one of the greatest English players of all time, Stephen Gerrard. Why didn't you pass it to me? He looked back over his shoulder to look at the satisfied smile on Xabi Alonso's face. He hit, just hit a beautiful strike 70 yards down the pitch to take advantage of an open goal left by a young slash aging English goalkeeper. But bam, bam, that went in and that secured Liverpool there passage into the next round. Liverpool fans made him somewhat of a beautiful player because they made chance about him. But he made him he made his own name. And when he was almost forced out of the club by a disagreement between Rafa Benitez and Rick Parry, sure, two guys who <laughs> are, they wanted to buy no no other than Gareth Barry. Gareth Barry. Now whether that's because Benitez wanted to get rid of Xabi Alonso or Rick Parry said, look, we can't com- accommodate two midfielders and Benitez said, I need someone more malleable. doesn't matter. Xabi Alonso was still a player that Liverpool fans loved and they never said they wanted him to leave the club. And they still said to this day they want to see him in a gegenpressing system. Whether he'd be able to do that or not is another question. Anyway, we go back to the eulogy. Xabi Alonso is a beautiful player who can hit beautiful passes unlike anyone else and when he leans back and hits the ball in that unconventional way every person in the ground says wow that's Xabi Alonso and for that reason he's got his own identity in football and I think that there'll be my kids definitely in years to come we'll see videos of Xabi Alonso even just hitting passes and the difference between Xabi Alonso and other players is yeah genuinely Xabi Alonso hits passes in the same way that other players hit goals and that's the reason that Xabi Alonso is a fantastic player. Yeah, it's a shame that you won't be able to Xabi sit him down and watch Paul Scholes, though, Lawrence. Right? Yeah, Dave, <laughs> I don't need them to sit down and watch Paul Scholes because people like you 
their godfather, Dave, <laughs> will sit them down them and that. say, this is beautiful. Watch this. Because your father, who is a beautiful man, will not, will not, will not allow this. I can't, and, I can't envision Dave saying it for some he's reason. The, I'll say it's um, fine. He's the godfather. Your godmother, sure, will make you sit down and watch <laughs> Nutmegs by Deli Alley. Sure, your beautiful godmother, Adam Boltwood, will make them sit it down and watch Nutmegs by Deli Alley. <laughs> But and tackles but from Victor Wanyama. But your completely heterosexual oh, other godfather will make them sit down and hit passes, right? In the same way that Gufran did, or in the same way that John Joe Shelby did. And that's why mm. they've all got beautiful tiny kits sent to them by Kristen mm. Hennage. And I'm getting emotional now, guys. But <laughs> Shabby Alonso. Was a beautiful player in the same way you all be beautiful godfathers and wow. mothers to my what kids. What a way to end uh, a eulogy for Shabby Lonzo there. Uh, Kristen three. knows. Kristen knows. He sent Spurs kids to all of my unliving sperm. I love it. Uh, three league titles. He's uh, prior. Two Champions He's just League. muted. Two European Championships and, of course, the World Cup for Shabby Lonzo. What a career. Yeah. What a man, what a player. He, he uh, is, essentially, Adam, what I missed out of that eulogy, and in many ways it was a massive mistake for such a beautiful guy, is it, he won Triple Corona. And that's what I think a lot of people miss out, is that actually there are three great limes sitting on the side of a bar there that are just waiting to be put into a great Corona. Ooh. Yeah. Guys, it is time for the... Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Questions. No, we, it's just best to end there, Adam. Don't do the questions. Just end on the Jabby Alonso. We've got to get into We're some done. questions. We're done. Brilliant. We've end got to get Fantastic. into them. Um, in many ways, up, these are Jabby Alonso's questions. In many ways. Uh, first up, Luke Dor asks, who would be most likely out of the front three to win a game show of your choice? Probably hmm. Chris. Uh, if you were to go on Mastermind, Probably Chris, Jabby Alonso. I mean, Lawrence, you go for Shabby Alonso, it's a given. Uh, Chris, what would you have as your mastermind topic? This can decide, you know, who we think would win. Um, the Football Republic 2013 to present. Oh, Good. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> um, Dave, Chris, what would be right. your but Chris, but can you, can you tell me which shirt was worn third by Lloyd Griffith in the seventh edition of uh, Every, Every Fan in 90 Seconds? <laughs> Ooh, it's got to be a hole, hasn't it? I'm pretty uh, sure it was Hull. Actually, yeah, you're right, yeah. It was Hull. Absolutely no chance. Uh, Dave, he was on BBC Two the other day. I think I'd go for Premier League football stats from the moment that Angulo Kante won a tackle till the moment Ooh. that he ended his career, um, you know, yeah, winning the yeah. Premier League five yeah. straight yeah. seasons in a row with five Shit, different teams. Shit, that's awesome. That's some beautiful shit, Dave. 
Oh, I think mine would be uh, the Delhi Spurs title-winning uh, season of 2019-2020. Uh, I think that's the wow. one I'll, uh, that'll be my Wow, it's a fictional book, but Jesus, that's beautiful. Mm. I think you'd win, Lawrence, in, in, uh, based on this. Xabi Alonso is your specialist topic. You'd win. You'd be the one most likely to win. Yeah, I think that's no just shit, a given. Um, next question is from Frederick Hallerstrom. On a scale from Joey Barton to Scar in The Lion King, how big of a cunt is Luis Suarez? Interesting question. <laughs> Dave, what do you reckon? Is he uh, on that scale? Yeah, he's, a, he proper, he's a proper Joey scar? Barton for me. But a real Joey. So he's, but he's that's not a scar. I mean, is, is it, Joey Barton at the top? Yeah. Like, of this, or is he the bottom of the scale? I thought he was scar, the scar killed me fascinated. You know what I'm saying? Which, which, whichever the top echelons of this scale is. Suarez Does that make sitting. Chiellini Mufasa? <laughs> Maybe. Chiellini is Mufasa in many ways. Or is that Patrice um, Evra? I can't work it out. Or, or is Kenny Dalglish Mufasa? I can't work it out. Chris. Yeah, it, he's slap hanging in the middle. Bad say. eggs. Um, next question is from Mahidir Mukundi. Dave, who's key for United? I assume who's more key? Pogba or Mkhitaryan? Or Evra. Um, I'm gonna go with uh, in an attacking sense, Henrik Mkhitaryan. Um, just because whenever he's in the side, United look a lot more fluid. They look a lot better in the the final third. Great stat coming out of Statman Dave's head today. Henrik Mkhitaryan has played eight through balls in the Premier League this season, um, and he's completed five of them. So he has a decent, uh, you know, through ball conversion rate. But a stat mm. that will really, really blow some some shit up. Lionel Messi, right? Is, is a joke of a footballer, right? But in over the last three seasons in La Liga, he's completed 81 through balls. What do you reckon the posi- the number of through balls that the person in number two has completed? 82. 82. Hmm. 91. 81. Incorrect, incorrect. 70. 75. No, no, you're well off. 33. Oh, Jesus. 26. That shows, that, I think that just shows that there's another stat that's like Lionel Messi is a joke. Hmm. Sure. No, Mike Fryer says... Fantastic. Mike Fryer says, where will Oxlade-Chamberlain head next season? What would be a good move for his development? Chris, talk the Guardiola. Wants to sign English players next season. Could he be off to Man City? Is that the place for the next stage in Oxlade-Chamberlain's career? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. He's the kind of player that fits into that system. He's, I don't want to reduce him just to physicals because I think his pace, his athleticism is a big part of his game. I also think he's quite a good technician as well. He can carry the ball really well and that takes a lot more than just the ability to run. I think the, the difficulty in doing what Guardiola wants to do, which is build that English core, and he's touched on it, is how cost-effective it is because even a guy like Oxlade-Chamberlain is going to cost a significant amount, I would imagine, compared to German, French, Spanish, Italian equivalents. You have to maybe be a little bit shrewd, and I think this is why City are trying to upgrade their academy consistently year on year, or at least increase the output of it. Um, I think the current crop, the likes of Brandon Barker, people like that, are maybe just a rung or two down from what they need. Um, so they're going to need potential stop gaps. I think that's why they tried to pick up, or that's why they did pick up, excuse me, Fabian Delph. Um, but in, in terms of Oxford Chamberlain to City, yeah, I think it would be great. There, there's a potential there, and I'm, I'm using the comparison very loosely, I admit, 
for him to perform a similar role to, to Yaya Toure, someone who can potentially break the lines for for City in the final third. Now, interestingly, Guardiola's been using Toure in a deeper position of late, and I was actually at the, the Sunderland game on Sunday where Toure was a bit more of a creator, really. I think he was a bit of a physical presence to, to kind of break things up and, and not let the City midfield get overrun, but it was more about giving the passes to, to teammates quite quickly. So there's a lot of different potential there. He could even play on the right wing and take that spot that Navas has got, maybe. Um, but in terms of a potential deal, I, I can't claim to know figures or, or what potential figures might be. But but I think it makes a, a good a lot of sense just from a, a playing perspective. Here's a great question from Alex Sanchez. Nike or Adidas boots? <sighs> Big question. Um, I just I think Have you? What, what yeah. have you gone to? I, I had, um, I actually have them on me. Um, Nike Mercurials. Well, the ones Ooh. with <laughs> the ones with the, the collar. Um, but honestly, they, they, they're almost ruined like less than a year in, which is kind of wow. disappointing considering they were close to 200 quid um to buy so i've just picked wow. up a pair of um ace pure controls but they sent me the wrong ones the first time around so i've had to reorder them sure starting to sound like neil custis you um <laughs> i think i'd go for adidas boots uh i think it's adidas for me lawrence do you even need to ask adam well, I mean, you are going on. You are getting some tickets for a Juventus game from Adidas, so I'd be surprised that's, if you that's said like, that's, I've worked hard for those, Adam. I think. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you don't want to mess it up now. Yeah, we, I mean, I don't want to mess it up now. Yeah, I'm a pure <laughs> control in a uh, a my uh, boot style. Dave, are you a Nike man or an Adidas wearer? Come on, mate. That's simple, right? If there's a, comp- a competition at the moment. Got to be the Adidas boots, even though you know boots. I'm not too bothered with boots, really. But yeah, Adidas keep the brand <laughs> connected. Dave's more bothered. Dave's more bothered with streetwear. Dave's a big streetwear. Man. Exactly. Yeah, loves his streetwear. Um, the next question is about streetwear. Alexis Sanchez. Exactly. Where is Alexis Sanchez going? Oh well, this um, is Dave's special subject according to his podcast. Is it now? Is that yeah. so? Yeah. Dave, is it? Yeah, I think it was um, Tuesday, episode 17. So if you want to go He's and find out where Tuesday. Sanchez should go, um, I'll give you some suggestions. So okay. You've got to click uh, it, unfortunately. DB, at Internet Stampdad, who was asking that question, uh, what could be a great fit for him, go and check out the Statman Day football podcast, and you'll find your answer there. Tuesday's episode, you say that? Yeah, episode 17. To be precise. LFC Commentary says, which of the remaining Premier League fixtures are you most looking forward to? It is obviously North London Derby, end of April. Thank you very much. Uh, anyone else got any suggestions? Liverpool still have to play Everton a couple of weeks down. Ooh, that could be very tasty indeed. So you play United as well, don't they, some point? Yeah. Yep. I'd say only three of those, to be honest. Um... Liverpool are still to play Man City after they play Burnley. They then they then play Everton back to back after that. Um, Liverpool Crystal Palace is still coming this season. That one's a mouthwatering tie. Ooh, that's the big one. Um, here's an interesting question from Bean Roberts: Should the away goals rule be removed? A lot of talk last night at three-one, albeit 
that the away goals rule should be scrapped. It's ruining these games. Not much mention of it after the game. But what do you reckon, Dave? Does it sort of take away from the competition? Question, are you going to take out the offside rule first? No, Ooh, I don't know. Well, I can't we? get into this debate, fortunately. Okay, well, I mean, <laughs> no, I think, I think away, the away goals rule gives, um, gives good advantage. I think it's, it's fine. I think it's, you know, everyone knows the rule. You know what the, either the, the games are and so forth. I think it, it does well because of the, the group stages and the, the last 16 ties. Um, that obviously the teams that come top of the group play at home second, giving them the advantage and so forth. So I like the rule. I think it's absolutely fine. People know what to do with it. They just need to adopt their style and that makes it get the football a more exciting game of chess. Did it not spur the game on last night? Uh, sorry, last night. Did it not spur the game on between... It's supposed PSG? to, yeah, make teams more attacking, right? To go for well, that win. Well, I mean, in that case, it sort of made um, Barcelona PSG a more interesting game, didn't it? We wouldn't have had the greatest comeback of all time. Well, we would have. I just mean it would have happened in extra time. Right. Um, the final question this week is a fantastic question from Chelsea Andrew. Considering where teams are at the moment, who do you see challenging for the title in the Premier League next season? Who and where do teams need to improve? He personally, Andrew, can see United being the biggest challenger to Chelsea if Chelsea do indeed go on to win the title. City need more. Um, it's a great question. I think so much is yet to happen. You know, could Arsenal Wenger leave? The whole situation for Arsenal could change. Talk of Conte going to Inter Milan. Who knows what's going to happen over the summer? But I think at this current moment, looking at it, I think it's going to be Manchester City. I think Guardiola is going to make big changes this summer. Um, a lot of reinforcements are going to be coming in, and I'd expect them to be performing at a much higher level than they have been this season. So I'd say Chelsea and City, probably the top two. Uh, next season, uh, what do you recognise? Uh, I still think United will challenge. I think Liverpool will challenge. Um, uh, I think Spurs uh, will be up there. I think they'll challenge. I don't think they'll win it, but I think they'll challenge. Mm. Dave, are United going to be the biggest challenges to challenge? And Everton. Yeah, I'd say so. You know, they they don't lack the the mentality that Spurs do. So yeah, Manchester United, the few few more signings will be ready to go. A centre half and a uh, someone that can score goals. Simple as that. Chris is Rafa Benitez going to take Newcastle to the top of the table next season? Next a challenge. Season. Not next season. Maybe the maybe the season after. Whoa! Really. I, th- I think they could sort. I think they could um, challenge for the top eight the season after, but not next year. It, I mean, it, such, it depends. I mean, he's he's a very ambitious man, and and the thing is, the thing I look at is the last ten games of the last season. The if you'd if you'd ex- I think extrapolate the right word here. If you'd extrapolate that out the entire season, they would have had something like forty five, forty eight points, so been fairly comfortable, and that was a pretty terrible squad. So you've got to think with a year working with this squad and then you add a few high caliber players which is what he's targeting then things start to look better before we go whole of the week some great reviews coming in on itunes if you want to get involved if you want to be whole of the week all you have to do is click the link in the description of this very podcast and submit your rating and review can be five stars you know it uh, doesn't hurt if it is uh two reviews to mention first off Better than pundits, says SDMU, all the way from Canada. Thank you very much for your review. Great podcast, excellent analysis that you will not get 
or match of the day. Hashtag get Dave a new laptop. Eh? Oh, Maybe it means a new mic because now my yeah. my voice is Maybe very it's sounding level. pretty yeah, smooth right now. Pretty decent. So, yeah, he's got a new one. It's sounding good. Um, but I am going to give hold of the week to Batty Golly Bobo from the USA. Really enjoyable podcast, he says. Five stars. Knowledgeable, entertaining. These ads continue to prove they know how to find the net, the, the metaphorical net. You know, uh, a real breath of fresh air for football commentary and analysis. Do yourself a solid and subscribe. Yeah. Do you think he means? You obviously already subscribe means... if you're listening. You know. I mean, Adam, my worry is: Do you think he means he knows we know how to find the internet? You think that's yeah. the worry? Yeah. Not metaphorical. Yeah, like it's being we, literal, we very literal. We've got very ready access to the internet. Yes, maybe, I mean it can be read in many ways. Maybe yeah. we'll never know what Batty Goli Bobo meant. But thank you very much for your review. <laughs> All the same, five stars. <laughs> he gives. Uh, guys, if you want to be hold of the week, as I said, do get your reviews in on iTunes. I think what I might start doing is best review of the month. I'll get them a box of Ferrero Rocher. Ferrero. I'll bring that back. We'll, we'll never Come and get Batty the reviews in, guys. <laughs> Batty Bobo is in the in the running now for best comment of March. He has been nominated for that for our Russia. If you want to get your reviews in before next week and be one of the four nominees, then do so now. Uh, no time like the present. You too could for be now, in the though, same echelons as Batty Bobo. Yeah, what an honour indeed. Yeah. For now though, thank you so much for listening to The Front Free. It's been a pleasure to have you here with us. Uh, we'll be back on Monday as always with a weekend review. A lot of FA Cup action to talk about then. Until then though, Dave O'Brien, where can people find more of you? On multiple sources, Adam. Acast, iTunes. Find me there at Statman Dave, football podcast. Type it in. Get involved. Lovely stuff. Do it. According to Chris Paul Mention, it's made it into the top 20 of the UK iTunes podcast charts. Uh, actually, it's the top Incredible. 17, Lawrence. Sorry, Dave, you mistake. Lawrence McKenna, where can people find you? You can go to at Gary... <laughs> Lovely stuff. It was it you writing that review, was it? That was actually me. Uh, yeah, you can find me. Um, trying to think where you would uh, catch me outside. How about that? Catch me outside. How about that? Uh, Chris Hennage has dropped out of the call, but you can find him on Twitter at, at K Hennage. Some great articles, uh, as always, being written by. And he's Chris in New this York week. right now, Adam. And he is in New York right now, uh, having the time of his life. Uh, he just said, got a bounce, boys. So he's gone. But he's just written a great article uh, about Sunderland today, about how they're trapped in a vicious circle. Um, do go and check it out. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, Adam Boltwood. Just, you know, tweeting great A banter every day Adam, of the week, 24 7. I, I just, I just to ask you, Adam, uh, Adam, are you a banter account? Because you do seem to banter quite a lot. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. No, but I think, you know, I just like that little bit of fun, you know?
Anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on Monday.